1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author Stephen Johnson discusses his new book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Then PW senior news editor Calvin Reed recaps the National Book Awards.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan.
1: Well, there's not much happening over in fiction. Um, the the top few books are uh, pretty similar to what they've been. Um, one one note is that uh, Lee Child is at the number one spot with Night School, and, and the list has technically it was out uh, last week, but it mm-hmm. was out at the very end of last mm-hmm. week. So, this is the first real week of it out. Um, it's Jack Reacher number 21. If that name sounds familiar, that's because there's a Jack Reacher film. In theaters right now, um, oh. starring Tom Cruise. So um, nicely timed to uh, right. with the new book in the series coming out just in time for the movie. Um, this one is set in 1996, with uh, series protagonist Jack Reacher still in the army, and uh, there's plenty of espionage excitement going on uh, and uh, lots of lots of uh, international intrigue. Okay. So. Fans of the series, especially those who uh, just watched the movie and thought it was pretty cool, mm-hmm. uh, will definitely want to pick this one up. So that's our number one. At number five, we have *The Chemist* by Stephanie Meyer. If the, that name sounds familiar, it's because <laughs> she wrote the Twilight series. Uh, she's branched out a little bit into uh, a few other things since then. Um, this one is for adults, so uh, you know, not you know, don't don't expect the YA vibe of Twilight. Uh, mm. But it is a romantic thriller. And uh, it's about a a former operative for a secret U.S. government agency that killed her mentor, and she must take extraordinary steps to stay alive. Uh, Our review says it's a little uneven. The compelling opening chapters are uh, followed by a more predictable Mm. plot. We say that the way the plot plays out doesn't really do justice to the intriguing setup, and underdrawn characterizations don't help. So that's at number five, and then uh, moving down the list, uh, number eight is That This Was a Man, the seventh book in the Clifton Chronicles by Jeffrey Archer. Uh, this is yet another thriller, more spy stuff, more excitement. This yeah. one is uh, set in England and uh, it's about a member of the, uh, the cabinet who discovers that his wife may be a spy. Yeah. And uh, there's sort of family drama, there's uh, intrigue drama, lots going on there. And finally, at number 12 is At the Sign of Triumph by David Weber. This is the ninth book in his Safe Hold, Far Future Science Fiction series. And uh, there's, uh, I don't even know how to describe the setup now that we're in book number nine. There's been a great deal going (laughs) on. Um, It's one of those series with vast epic scopes um but uh there it it involves uh, the last survivor of earth on a now distant planet that's engulfed in its own battles between a church and a rebellion and Mm. um there's a lot going on. You don't want to start the series with this book. <laughs> right, um, right, But obviously, uh, at number 12 on the bestseller list, there are plenty of series fans who are happy to put it up there. And that's what we've got. That's all the new stuff in the top 25.
0: Well, um, so these are, I, I only have actually um, two debuts in the top 25, so I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. And this was because these are a lot of the books that were published during election week. And so let's see what, what people were buying in nonfiction. Number three, medical medium, life-changing foods. Save yourself and the ones you love with the hidden healing powers of fruits and vegetables. So, um, so we've got a little bit of salvation going on here.
1: Now, is it just me or have people been saying that eating fruits and vegetables makes you healthy for like a long time?
0: (laughs) I I don't really feel like
1: this is actually a a well-kept secret.
0: (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And this is the next level of uh, medical revelation, they say. I think maybe people are going back to what they know best. I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that
1: the nutrition book industry, the diet book industry always astonishes yep, me. I just feel fuddling. like it's the same thing over and over again, yeah. but I, that's at number three on the list. Yeah, that's so at number
0: three. So people,
1: people want to, let me
0: go back, maybe consume they,
1: the same thing again.
0: Maybe there, this is maybe a little reaction to the paleo. Uh, uh, possibly. So, mm-hmm. so it's like, let me get my fruits and veggies back. Mm-hmm. Let me have some grapefruit in the morning. <laughs> So, no more eggs. So, number 19. So, we're jumping from 3 to 19, and this is... Playing with Power Nintendo NES Classics. Uh, Take a nostalgic look back on the Nintendo Entertainment System in this exclusive hardcover collector's edition Slipcase. That is for
1: people like me.
0: Perfect. Okay, good, good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because as soon as I saw that, I'm like, ooh, I'm an old school Nintendo fan from way, way back. I play them all on my laptop now. Well, something
0: happened, and and people were buying this last week, Mm -hmm. um, along with the veggies. So it's a return to Nintendo. And return to veggies and fruits. <laughs> <Your pieces>. Sure, <laughs>
1: two great tastes that taste great together.
0: <laughs> well, and here's another thing. It's kind of like something that uh, was popular a couple decades ago is coming back. The Wild Unknown Tarot Deck and Guidebook. So this is a number 26. So wow. we're already at yep. A so, tarot deck. A tarot deck and guidebook. Uh, this is a, a keepsake that. box set. Uh huh. Um, so we've got a little more escape there from reality. Sure, um, why uh, not? But yeah, exactly. We and need then, something
1: to give us direction in these <laughs> uncertain times.
0: Well, so we've got Veggies, Nintendo, and um, Tarot. So we're doing it's fine. Like the 80s oh, all over again. And number 28, believe it, Chicago Cubs World Series Champions, published by the Chicago Sun-Times, just in time for the win. It's uh, like
1: 1908 all over again.
0: Uh, you know what? I, 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 just, I just can't do this anymore. We're just going back further and further in time. But wait, number 32. Now, this is something that is uh, topical in in a way. Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right by Arlie Russell Hochschild. Uh, This is a new press book. It's at number 32. Hochschild is a sociologist and U.S. Berkeley professor uh, emerita who brings her expertise to American politics, addressing today's conservative movement and the ever-widening gap between, as we've been saying, uh, right and left. Hochschild contends that current thinking neglects the importance of emotions in politics. So this is... um,
1: That is very timely.
0: Yeah, exactly. So number 32, imagine we'll be seeing more of that sales next week as well. And a starred review, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America by Nancy Eisenberg. This is published by Viking Eisenberg, who's the uh, author of um, Fallen Founder, which is the life of Aaron Burr, who's also a professor at history at Louisiana State University, tackles a topic rarely addressed by mainstream American writing on race and class, as she skillfully, as we say in her review, demonstrates that class defines how real people live. A Marxist analysis of the proletariat this is not, but Eisenberg's expertise particularly shines in the examinations of early America in every chapter and we say every chapter is riveting. That's at number 34. And uh, so we went deep, but uh, we've got a little um, variety here.
1: Yeah, there's uh, some, so, some rewards some, for going yeah, further exactly.
0: down Exactly. So and that's what we have on the bestseller list.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Stephen Johnson tells us about the importance of play. We'll be right back.
2: I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today we've got Stephen Johnson on the line, and his new book is Wonderland. Hey, Stephen, so glad you could join us. Hey, really nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about this world of Wonderland, how play made the modern world.
2: Yeah, this book is in a way a a little bit of a sequel or kind of building on the work that I did in uh, How We Got to Now, my last book, which was also a PBS series. Um, and that book had been a look at a whole history of innovations that we that are so ubiquitous now that we kind of take them for granted, parts of the modern world that we've just kind of accepted as, as almost so you know uh, ordinary that we don't even think about them anymore. And, you know, I tried to go back and tell all these interesting histories of these ideas, where they came from, how they changed the world, and so on. But uh, and it turned out there are a million other things you could you could do. I loved writing in that mode. That kind of research was really interesting. And so I wanted to continue that kind of inquiry, but also to make a larger kind of distinct argument about the forces that are governing history. Um, and, and that argument in, in Wonderland is that play and delight and leisure um, turns out to be Way more important to how society changes, um, to new ideas, to political revolutions, to technological revolutions, than we would kind of conventionally uh, imagine. So things that we do just for the fun of it often lead to dramatic changes in society
1: so tell us about um some of your favorite anecdotes i mean every page has uh, a new one i flipped to a random page in the book and i found this guy with one arm who was stealing nutmeg seeds from the dutch <laughs> you know just yeah, uh, a, yeah. you know amazing uh, anecdotes on every page but were there any that um you particularly loved as you were putting together this book
2: yeah, there's so there's so many. I mean that that's what the Spice chapter, which is incredibly interesting. I mean you know, the the one that in, in a way was the one that I've had for the longest amount of time. Uh years and years and years ago when I was in grad school I went to grad school in English literature and kind of focused on the nineteenth century novel and kind of the metropolitan novel and all that stuff. And in in one of my grad seminars we talked about this phenomenon that happened in Paris uh, in the 19th century when the first department stores uh, uh, arrived, and you had stores like the Balmarché where, you know, for the first time there were these kind of grand, epic spaces designed for the kind of the, the the wonderland of shopping basically, and all these extraordinary things on display, and you know, kind of majestic rooms and all this kind of stuff, and, and one of the things that happened that just baffled everyone is that all these well-to-do women were basically caught stealing from these stores. They, they, there was this epidemic of kleptomania, hmm. uh, which was a term that had just been uh, coined re- right around that period, where these women who had plenty of money to buy whatever they wanted, but they started stealing, and there was this kind of disorder that kind of <laughs> swept through the Parisian elite, where they were all like, you know, stealing from these department stores. And it and it became known as the department store disease. And in fact, Zola wrote about it in in uh, his book uh, the de the Dam*, uh, *Lady's Paradise*, and he, he, it uh, it provoked this big conversation about what was going on with these people. Why were they doing it? And eventually, the the kind of analysis was there was something about this space that was so overwhelming to the senses that people were literally kind of losing their minds. Um, because they were shaped by this new, you know, kind of pleasure dome of shopping that was so kind of, in you know, a kind of sensory level, so wow. overwhelming. And it was really, in, in some ways, it was one of the first experiences where people began to think about the mind and diseases of the mind or disorders of the mind being shaped by, you know, new cultural experiences or new technologies. Now we take it for granted that we all worry, you know, what are video games doing to kids' minds or what is TV doing to our minds? And, And the shopping, the the department store disease was kind of the the beginning of that. So I always thought that was that was one of the stories that, you know, I heard when I was 24. (laughs) It's been sitting in the back of my mind for like 24 years, really half my life uh, waiting to find its way into a book.
0: So what came out of that incident and and how did shopping then evolve? I mean, how did it get beyond that that point of people just going wealthy people going in and stealing stuff?
2: Well, really, I think actually the most important point is what happened before, um, before the department store. So, I'd, the, the conventional story that that people, you know, would often tell when they talk about kind of the history of capitalism is that you have this industrial revolution, and uh, you know, it develops. You create all these, you know, new goods that are you know mass produced for the first time, and you create for the first time this kind of upper middle class that. Can afford to go shopping in places like the Boulangerie, and so a kind of consumer society gets invented. Um, at, you know it, after about hundred years of industrialization in, in the second half of the nineteenth century, but in fact, actually, that story ha- has it kind of backwards in a way. And what what really happened is in the late sixteen hundreds, uh, 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 a new kind of smaller store, not a big department store, but a smaller store, started to appear. in in cities like London where the store itself was designed to be this kind of mini wonderland where, you know, there there was kind of lovely drapes and fancy furniture and going shopping became not just this utilitarian thing where you had to go out and get some food and, you know, get some basic garments, but there was a kind of envelope of luxury that, you know, you were, you were surrounded by when you went shopping and it became its own kind of pastime. And what those, Shoppers were looking at, in many ways, in in that period, was calico and chintz, right? Cotton fabrics, beautifully designed fabrics that have been imported from India, and because of these fancy stores that had just opened up, this kind of fascination with calico and chintz starts to sweep through English society, and all these well-to-do people start to uh, crave cotton on their bodies, partially because it was soft, right? So up until that point. People had been wearing like wool underwear, which of course was yes. incredibly unpleasant. And, but it was also because of these colors and, and patterns. And so there's this craze for calico and chintz. And then that triggers this um, political backlash because all of a sudden there's all this money being made from this. There's this huge trade deficit with, with India. The East India Company starts making all this money. And all the, the traditional wool industry in England is getting put out of business because people aren't buying wool anymore, they're buying cotton. And so there's this massive political backlash and kind of outrage about these women that were called calico madams, who were betraying English society because they liked these beautiful new fabrics. And in fact, for a while, calico and chintz were banned outright.
1: This this is Um, like people talking about Japanese cars when you could buy American, right? It's
2: well, I mean, it's it's what we're talking about now. I mean, mm-hmm. it's what we're talking about right in the middle of this. This is, in a sense, what they had was like a, a make England's wool industry great again kind of boot <laughs> Um and and but simultaneously with all of this, a, a, a different set of folks were like, wait a second, what if we built machines that could create cotton fabrics here in the UK or in Britain, and. Those people became those engineers and inventors became, that that was what started the industrial revolution and, and you know the, the industrial revolution was really provoked by this new market for these fabrics and thinking about how you could automate the process of, of making them in some ways or you know make it more efficient through through steam power so the, the whole chain of, of you know and obviously the industrial revolution is you know probably the most important. You know, economic transformation in, in world history. So, it all starts with this kind of moment of delight with this new fabric, and then sets in motion all these events that end up being world changing. But if you forget that part of the story that that the, the, the kind of the play of these new fabrics, you're missing out on, on what actually happened.
1: It's so funny. I hadn't put it together before, but um, I'm, I'm a big. Uh, Jane Austen fan, and um, some of the most modern feeling scenes in her books are where women are going shopping and they're talking about this fabric and that fabric and yeah. what do you think of these gloves? And it's exactly like, come on, girls, let's go to the mall. But you know, yeah. no, no, two hundred exactly. years ago,
2: and and Austen is interesting in the sense, in, in that a lot of the a lot of the things that are in the book actually um, are things that that originally are the Kind of belong to the the elite of society, right? So, the ladies going shopping. um, There's a lot of stuff from from the beginning of the book, and then later in the chapter, on illusion about the these uh, automata, the kind of mechanical dolls, uh, animatronic style dolls, toys that were the. uh, There was a big craze for them also in in the 1700s, where you go. You know to the drawing room of uh, of some parisian aristocrat and you would see this automated flute player Mm -hmm. um and it was something that you know no ordinary person would ever encounter but you know in this small little the kind of the one percent of society they were interested in these things well those things at the time they looked just like like a folly really they looked like a toy um and something only the you know, the kind of the elite with too much time on their hands would end up doing. But they turned out to be if you were trying to predict the future, if you were trying to, you know, look at what was coming next over the next centuries in terms of automated labor and mechanization and then programmable computers and now artificial intelligence and robotics and all these things, those toys were you know, a tremendous clue about what was what was coming next. And and so looking you know, even though it's true, it was just a small little sliver of the world's population at that moment. It was a very interesting sliver to look at, and the same same is true of uh, of everything in Austin. I think you know, it was a very small slice of the population, but it was a very interesting slice at that particular moment in time.
0: So, I'd like to talk a little bit about music and how how, as you say, how that led to the computer age.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, just put um, we. we we did this really lovely um, uh, kind of special TED talk on, on that part of the book. Um, we just put live the other day, and uh, it's kind of an animated talk, so it's, it's a different format for them. And it, that was a lot of fun to put together. Um, music turns out to have this really interesting, long, kind of secret connection to to computing. Um, you know, again, talk about conventional history. It's a conventional story is that computers really come out of military technology that you've got. You know, all these, you know, first computers that were developed around World War II and, and just beyond that, they were calculating rocket trajectories or cracking wartime codes and so on. Um, and that is part of the story, for sure. But there is an interesting longer history that connects it to music. Um, in, in Baghdad, in uh, at kind of the height of the Islamic Golden Age, there was... Um, there were these three brothers of Banu Musa, they're called, and, and uh, they did all these extraordinary engineering kits, all of which were basically toys and baubles and little mechanical dolls, just like uh, in the 1700s in Paris. But they did something uh, that was almost lost to history, by the way. It almost disappeared, uh, any trace of it. But there was this obscure manuscript that someone found about 100 years ago, and and it had the engineering specs for this device that they built that was called the instrument that plays itself. And it was basically a kind of a music box. It actually was a, a kind of an automated flute player. And like a music box, it could be programmed to to play music with a little cylinder with little pins in it um, corresponding to basically the code of the music. Whatever song you wanted to play, um, you would kind of encode it with these on um, the cylinder. They would call it cutting a cylinder, the Quite the way that we talk about cutting a record, where we used to back when people made records. And uh, the, what was what was radical about it was that you could swap out different cylinders. And, and the the brothers in their kind of description of this object spent a lot of time talking about how it could be made to play any song you wanted. And it was it was kind of an abstract machine. If you wanted to rewrite it to perform another function, you could you could just create a different code and swap that in. And so it was really the first. Programmable uh, machine, uh, and the whole idea of kind of hardware and software in our in our machines becomes imaginable for the first time with this instrument in you know 900 uh, A.D. and and it in fact that idea of programmability stays with music in in the form of automated music boxes and, and music playing machines for like 600 700 years. It's mm-hmm. kind of kept alive by music, and then. And then people started thinking, actually related to cotton, they started thinking, well, hey, what if we could program patterns into, with, with fibers um, and we could take thread and basically create a kind of multicolor pattern of some kind with the same principle? Um, and then Jacquard, the famous French inventor, comes up with the idea of using punch cards to do this. So still, you're still in the world, world of fashion and beautiful patterns instead of beautiful patterns of sound. It's still, it's now the delightful patterns of cloth. And then finally, Charles Babbage begins to think, "Wait a second, I could, I could program a calculating machine uh, mm. with these paper punch cards." And he builds the Difference Engine and the Analytic Engine, which are the first real programmable computers ever imagined. And so uh, th- there's a whole long lineage there, and there are actually other connections as well, too. And I think it's because music is so much about a kind of code, right? Um, it's, of all the arts, it's the one that can be reduced to a flow of kind of symbols. And that, that ability to encode music made it kind of work naturally with the, the code of software. The two domains kind of, kind of played nicely with each other in a way.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Stephen Johnson, author of Wonderland, who's talking about the, the history of programmable music and programmable beauty and uh, i was definitely thinking of the jacquard loom but also of uh, things like knitting patterns a, a lot of fiber craft is encoded in that way in, in these patterns that are sort of passed from one person to the next and each person replicates them uh, in their in their own way but it's not hard to imagine a machine just making them over and over again
2: and, and the other thing you know we now take it for granted that um... We pay money for forms of entertainment that are encoded digitally, you know, whether they're, you know, digital books that we buy or whether they're, you know, whether it's music that's been converted into, um, you know, zeros and ones or or a movie. You know, that whole model of paying for a code that is then played back to us by some kind of device in our home so that we can enjoy it, that is ubiquitous now but really the first version of that were player pianos right, right? player pianos is the first time you had a machine in your home and there was some kind of you know uh, uh, extra material you could get in the form of these player piano rolls um where the music had been encoded in that and then you would bring it and stick it in the machine and then oh it would play for you so you know again music <laughs> music is just constantly leading the way with these these kind of proto digital uh technologies um, in, a, in just in a really interesting fashion.
0: So I have to ask, so my wife and I, we, we've seen, we, we watched uh, How We Got to Now on PBS and loved it. It was really great. Uh, and w- with that, those ideas and these, as a writer, once you have the idea of the book, um, how how do you come up with each of these examples? Uh, or? or or, or were these examples all part of the book as you had originally conceived it? I mean, because it seems like 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 going back to this kind of player using music as a, as an example, uh, this kind of player um, mechanism to computers. How did you come across that?
2: Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, that's the part of the stuff that's so fun as a writer, just going and digging and researching and and uh, and it's so much easier. You know, I've been writing. This is my tenth book. I've been writing books that have in general this kind of connective uh historical uh approach most of them have been in that mode and the internet has made this so much easier just just your ability to kind of follow a line of research it used to take weeks sometimes to find things to piece together the links and now you can do it in like an hour because everything's online so that part of my life has has gotten a lot easier and, and more efficient but with these, you know, the way the way to think of it is like this is one of the advantages of being older now. <laughs> that like, with the there's six main chapters in in Wonderland as there were in in How I Got to Now, and um, and with Wonderland, basically for each of the chapters, I I had just I had one or two little anchors of information. That I, that I already knew, like the, the kleptomaniacs in the department store for fashion and shopping. I knew that was gonna be a great story. And so then the question was, okay, if, if you start with the department store, what came before the department store? So then you dig around. And then I kind of stumbled across the Calico story, and then that became kind of the centerpiece of the chapter. Um, you know, I had I'd actually written, there, you know, there's this chapter on illusion about the history of kind of tricking the eyes into seeing things that aren't there, and how much technology and media comes out of that. and that was a chapter I'd actually been, I'd, been, I'd pitched the, the kind of producers of How We Got to Now. I thought we should do a whole episode on that for How We Got to Now, and they kind of just didn't listen to me. So, <laughs> so that was already kind of Well, there, you so showed them. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so there was, you know, music, I've always been interested in music, the games chapter. I'd written Everything that is Good for You, and I had written a lot about games and the history of games, and I knew about Space War, the first video game, and how important that was. And so I had that story. And, so you know it was just like you needed a little handle for each of the chapters enough to know that you had a place to start right, and that just came from kind of taking notes over the years and just being interested in things and trying to keep track of those different themes, and waiting for the right book to put them in and then, once I had the kind of critical mass of five or six of those that could you could build a chapter around, then it's just you know detective work, it's mm-hmm. just trying to follow all the different threads and the different directions and and a lot of times, you know you run into dead ends and you can't you know you think, "Oh, I think there's something really promising here, and I bet if I investigate this story, it'll be really interesting, and then it just turns out to not be all that interesting <laughs> but uh but it's it's really fun I mean that is uh I love that part of the process
1: i'm I'm hearing you sort of celebrate the fun of the work and also defend. Fun and pleasure in, yeah. in a way Like it, it sounds like There's um, there's some Kind of deep philosophical thing Underlying this where you're saying Don't ignore fun, don't Discount or dismiss The importance of pleasure
2: Yeah, I mean, you know This book is very um, it, it really is a Book of history, right? I mean it's a book about It's, it's got a kind of theory of at least part of how history changes and how, how progress happens and, and sometimes how terrible things happen. I mean, cotton obviously leads to slavery in, in many ways, and it's dependent, you know, a huge part of American exploitation is is built around cotton. So it's not that these things are always good. But the book is basically, a you know, an historical look at this, but it does raise a lot of issues um, uh, that I think could be developed and, and other people have developed them into, you know, a little bit more of a, you know popular psychology you know how to be more creative how to be more innovative kind of story as well i just didn't really want to write this that kind of book this time around. around but i think that it is clear that that playful state um where you're you're alive and alert and aware and in a good mood and your brain is being surprised by something this is a big part of the the kind of neuroscience of it all, like your your brain is expecting one thing and gets something else, and that moment of surprise is a very powerful one for the for the human brain. So when you put yourself in those states, you you know you you were just you, it's a very productive mental place to be. Even if it even if what you're doing seems like it's a little frivolous, it actually um, you know it's often the kind of seed of of much bigger ideas to come.
0: I, I want to talk about eating. Um, you, you have a chapter on public eating and drinking, and, and it seems now more than ever with Facebook and, and people going to restaurants and posting photos of eating that, that that's become even more public than ever. Uh, tell us about how eating has, has has contributed to this.
2: Well, there are really two. It's actually kind of two chapters, really. There's, there's a chapter on taste, um, which is really about spices. Um, and and how much the world was shaped by the spice trade, because that that's a great place where you know, if the division in this book is between things that are fun and playful, but not necessarily useful, and things that you know are really offer survival value to us, spices are just a great example of that. There because there's no nutritional value to them, but and but they transform the world. The desire to have these new flavors and tastes, like cinnamon and and, and pepper and and cloves and things like that. know that we have a global economy now because of the spice trade right you know it began with people being like there's this interesting you know crazy taste that comes from you know indonesia (laughs) (laughs) and i don't even know where indonesia is because it's you know (laughs) 1000 bc (laughs) but uh, somehow this little you know object has come from uh, you know the other side of the world and it makes my food taste more interesting, and so uh, you know I like it. I'm willing to pay money for this, and so we had a whole revolution in navigation and cartography and corporate structures and all stuff to bring these spices uh, around the world. Um, and then the other chapter is really the public space chapter, which is which is a little a little less on food and a little bit more on kind of coffee and 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 coffee houses and 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 taverns and bars. Um, in a way, like, the tavern is kind of one of the first spaces that is specifically designed to be a space of leisure. Um, that we now, now we take it for granted that the world is filled with, you know, not just bars and coffee houses, but sports stadiums and IMAX movie theaters and amusement parks and zoos. And, you know, there's all these spaces designed to have fun. And the bar is really one of the first ones of that. And, and there are so many important, particularly political, um, transformations that really depended on the existence of bars. You know, the the, the American Revolution um, is is powerfully uh, in, you know embedded in the kind of the network of taverns in mm-hmm. colonial America. You know, it's a huge part of the the revolutionary movement. Kind of came out of people gathering in bars and drinking and talking about you know Thomas Paine and and this new Declaration of Independence being read aloud in the bars and and then even things like you know. And think about the importance of bars in the history of the gay rights movement from stonewall um to uh, uh the black Cat in in la where there was you know kind of riots pre, pre and a big arrest that triggered a lot of activism pre-stonewall um th- those spaces are or you know the, the space of a bar is a space where traditional social Relationships and identities can be challenged, and and uh, it's a very culturally innovative kind of space in that way. Um, It's not a technological innovation, but it's but it's you know as important as as any of them.
1: I'm fascinated by this because uh, it's still. True today, you know, there, there's all these. Um, it, in some ways, it feels like what kind of person you are, both shapes and is shaped by where you go to uh, spend your leisure time. You know, are you sitting at home playing World of Warcraft in these in these digital leisure spaces? If you're going out, where are you going? Are you going to a fancy restaurant? Are you going to a nightclub? Are you going to the library? Uh, and these, uh, I'm, I'm now trying to picture a world that doesn't have these communal spaces. And it's really yeah. difficult.
2: Yeah. Well, the, 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 the main kind of part of the book ends with this little reverie about, uh, about Prospect Park here in, in Brooklyn mm. um, wh- where, you know, you go and you walk around and there's this, you know, dedicated leisure space for the city and it's filled with people from all around the world um and all these, you know, amazing different cultures and everybody's just kinda hanging out and having a good time and people get along and and that, that could have even existed in a way that that the the existence of that really dates back to the spice trade and to the idea that the world was not going to be a series of, you know, completely isolated cultures that, you know, followed some kind of unified worldview, but actually could be a kind of melting pot of different literally melting pot of different flavors from all around the world that then created these cities that brought all these people together and that you could then create leisure spaces where that all those different folks could hang out and get along you know that's an incredible achievement that that those spaces now exist and uh and exist in so many cities that we kind of take them for granted um and uh it's, it's kind of the antithesis of the the inner cities are a total nightmare. Right. You walk out the street and you get shot. It's like, no, actually, you walk out into the park and it's beautiful and everyone's getting along. And that achievement is, is the great side of globalization. Um, you know, that, that we have that luxury um, and it's a luxury that belongs to everyone.
1: So um, you give upwards of fifty lectures a year. So I've heard your writing is prodigious. Um, you're hosting this PBS show. You've got a million Twitter followers. Um, you're you're the man who has it all. How do you how do you do it?
2: <laughs> it sounds it sounds really better when you when you compress it all down like that. But it's actually, <laughs> they're all kind of spread out. I mean, I don't have to do anything more with the Twitter followers. They just are there and. Uh, uh, the show, you know, we're hoping to make some more episodes, um, you know, actually based on this book. But, but I haven't done that for, you know, two years, and so, um, but I, but I do write a lot. Um, my big thing with the writing is, uh, I really just write books. I mean, I, I almost never write. <laughs> it's so simple. Why didn't why didn't magazines. we all think of that? <laughs> I, 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 you know, yeah, I find that if you, it, it, you know, writing a magazine article like a three or four thousand word magazine article can can take you know a month or month and a half of your life very easily and you can write two chapters in that time frame uh, if, you're, if you're getting going and you're really in the middle of a book um, and so I just really try and focus uh, you know on, on the books I love to write books I, I seem to have a lot of ideas for them um, uh, and so and I'm, I'm I'm kind of the least tortured book writer I think out there like, I just really like it Um so, so that's really what my kind of career has been anchored in, which is uh, which has been great.
1: So we're we're back to fun, the importance yeah, of fun. Yeah. <laughs> but that's but exactly. that's wonderful because I I you know I, I give people writing advice sometimes, and I just keep being like, enjoy your book, enjoy your book. Don't don't yeah. worry don't worry about the word count. You you're a writer because you like to write, right? You know, have fun
2: yeah no that's what it it, it is a little bit like i have learned also it's a little bit like going to the gym where you kind of learn that oh when i'm done with this writing for the day i'm going to feel great and and so when i was younger it sometimes felt hard to write and then i kind of learned that oh i'm going to really feel good when i'm done with this passage at the end you know at the end of the block that i'm working on and and then that feeling starts to infect the whole thing it's just like oh i feel good because i'm writing and i know i'm going to feel good when it's over and And, you know, that that is one of the secrets of life is is find out something that you actually love to do and then, then, you know, just stick to it and continue that, you know, continue that fun with it.
1: We've been talking with Stephen Johnson. You can find his book Wonderland in stores right now. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us.
2: That was a lot of fun, as it were.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Mark Rotella. And
1: I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about the National Book Award, so stay tuned.
2: Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, the Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about the National Book Awards. Hi, Calvin. Hey, you guys. Hey, so it's very nice to have you here. Tell us about... The NBA is the big shining night in publishing. Well,
3: uh, the preeminent American Literary Awards, uh, that's the National Book Awards, I believe, is the 67th National Book Awards. Wow. Uh, held at Cipriani's in Lower Manhattan, a Gilded Age, uh, on top of Gilded Age. Talk about Gilding the Lily, but it's a beautiful room. And it was packed with the New York City publishing trade book industry, uh, dressed to the nines. Um, you know, it's it, it's a black tie affair and, you know, everyone looks really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but look, the real news coming out of it, of course, uh, well, of course, the traditional big news is uh, the fiction winner, mm-hmm. uh, Colson Whitehead for the Underground Railroad. Um, uh, but in another really important win, uh, and personal to me in some ways, uh, March Book 3, the incredible uh, graphic memoir of Representative John Lewis, the great civil rights mm. hero, uh, won for um, uh, best, uh, best for Young People's Literature, the Young right. People's Literature Award, uh, the first graphic novel to win a National Book Award. Um, there have been, I think, three others that were nominated. Right. Uh, including, what's it? Rose, uh, Roz Chass was nominated, and Jean right. uh, Yang was nominated twice. Mm. Um, but um, John Lewis brought it home <laughs> for the comics wow. community. Uh, it was a, a lot of fun. Uh, his publisher, Top Shelf, uh, IDW, they were there. They had a table. Uh seemed like, seemed like a lot of uh, drinks were, were drunk. <laughs> uh, uh there was a lot of uh, happiness and getting us going there. So that was that was a really kind of a notable evening. And of course, any event that John Lewis shows up in, uh, you know, it's it's just inspirational to see the guy, uh, certainly to see him up on stage. Uh, and by uh, coincidence, uh, or not so much a coincidence, uh, March book 2. Won uh, an Eisner Award, uh, which and the Eisners are generally what I call the uh, the National Book Awards of the comics industry. Right. Uh, this summer, and uh, he was just as galvanizing a presence, just as exciting. He ran on stage. He didn't run last night, but he was incredibly moved. Uh, I think he said something about how you know you know he grew up in uh, very poor in Alabama, and um, he couldn't believe that you know he's on the stage with uh, of New York. Right. Literally great. So that's it. So that was a very emotional moment. But for the rest of the win, uh, the rest of the awards, for nonfiction, uh, Ibram X. Kendi uh, won for his book Stamped from the Beginning, The Devin- Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, published by Nation Books. The guy really uh, researches every like part of our language of racism that has been uh, given to us over the years and finds their roots. It's really kind of... Um, Well, it's brilliant work, but it sounds kind of really oppressive, but uh, really an extraordinary book. And um, let's see, uh, the poetry winner was Daniel uh, Barzutsky uh, for his uh, book of verse, The Performance of Becoming Human by Brooklyn Arts Press. And as I mentioned, Carlson Whitehead's uh, The Underground Railroad, um, one in fiction, um, tremendous novel. It really was a great great evening uh, for you know New York literary backslapping
1: and it sounds like also a great evening for literature about uh, race past and present well, and
3: uh, as it turned out um, uh, it was uh, you know it was kind of um, yeah it was kind of a black yeah. night in uh, in the best sense of the word right. uh, at the National Book Awards uh, the uh, the MC this year was Larry Wilmore uh, formerly mm-hmm. of the Nightly Show very funny uh, he had plenty of lines uh, believe me the um, the uh, I, you know what to what to call it Donald Trump loomed over the proceedings <laughs> I was just uh, ask, yeah. for sure I think what his first line was uh, something like the coming Trump Presidency, he said, was going to completely affect the book world because they're going to, everybody's going to change their titles. Uh, they, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is going to be recalled the Hitchhiker's Guide to Canada. Um, there you go. The booksellers are they're moving all copies of the Constitution from nonfiction to the fiction center. So there was and there was more <laughs> like that throughout right. the evening. Uh, and, but it was also uh, Larry Wilmore who closed out the uh, evening by saying, you know, the National Book Awards brought to you tonight by BET. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, um, because I also did not mention the Lifetime Achievement Awards, which were Robert Caro, you know, the great nonfiction writer of Mm -hmm. of, uh, the Power Broker and LBJ. He won the award, um, the Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. Um, and there was the Literarian Award, which goes to a personal organization for, that uh, uh, makes great literary mm-hmm. contributions to the community. And it went to Cave Canem, the um, uh, Black Poetry Collective. Right. Uh, and it was um, uh, presented by uh, Terrence Hayes, uh, the poet, to uh, Cornelius E. D. and I never know how to say her name, Toy. And then they sort of gave a little recap of Cave Canem and his activities. And it's, you know, it's an organization of about 400 black poets. And um, uh, they had a really nice, you know, I've got this here somewhere. They had a really nice uh, statement to say, too, um, about Cave Canem, um, which is Latin, by the way. Um, and I think it means uh, something uh, into darkness or something like that. But, um, you know, writing is lonely all the time. Uh, as Hayes said, no organization can change that, but copycatum is a kind of fornication. Even if you are not a poet or black, it is a fornication of your language or history uh, and your future. So, um, yes, it was an evening um, that really paid tribute to African-American writing, uh, uh, including uh, the new executive director. Of the National Book Foundation, I was just. This is this uh, is her first time. The 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 fabulous and uh, truly superpowered Lisa Lucas. Uh, I say that because she seems to be on Twitter twenty four seven. But she's an absolute delight. Uh, she is a a a power packed woman who seems to get things done um, immediately. Uh, I woke up this morning to stories in ESPN about the the National Book Awards, and now. That's all first. Yes, well, apparently <laughs> she's reaching out to professional athletes and uh, in, in star athletes, I mean, like your LeBron Jameses, to get them involved in the, in the National Book Awards, which I think is absolutely terrific. What a wow. great idea. Terrific, since as we both know, as much as we love... The National Book Awards. Uh, if you say MBA to almost any American, they're not going to be thinking about books, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So you know, maybe we can do something about that, so that they'll at least have yeah. to pause for a second before they assume right. what you're talking about. So if anyone can do that, Lisa Lucas can. So she was, a, and she also paid tribute to um, her her predecessor, uh, Harold Aogan Brown, former executive who retired last year. Right. Who I would also like to give a shout out to and say uh, because when he first took the job over ten years ago his first presentation before the National Book Awards, he mentioned that he wanted to get graphic novels considered. And we ended up meeting and talking over the years. And uh, I remember at the time when I reminded him, he said at the time that, well, you know, they're never going to, um, a graphic novel is never going to win unless Harold Bloom writes one. And uh, <laughs> so we both laughed at that, but we both laughed at how, in fact, it's come a lot faster than either of us, thought. both for nominations and now winners. So, uh, so, so, Hey Harold, you were there first, and um, so we're we're going to give you a slap on the back. Well,
1: but that, you know, a great
3: night out for a literary New York.
1: And uh, and I hear there was a, a pretty exciting after party too. That's
3: true. Uh, this started about three or four years ago. Um, I forget one of the uh, one of the other uh, who was it? One of the other ebook retailers was sponsoring it first, but actually Apple and iBooks sponsored it last night. And if you have ever been to Cipriano's, there's this upper level where they're where they usually have a cocktail party before, but it's a dance floor afterwards. And uh, so um, I do recall seeing George Saunders up there a couple of years back, you I, know, I, doing his thing. I was gonna say, <laughs> what's his, it like to see a lot of his, writers you know, and the theater, editors yeah, dancing? Yeah, well, it's, sometimes it's, it's a little painful, but they're all having fun. No, and I think that's the most important thing, but uh, it's become quite a scene now. So uh, there's an open bar. And there's oh. a DJ and a big dancer, and, a, and a, they imported, I think, a giant disco ball this year. Oh, my goodness. So uh, it's for real folks. So I tell you, if you can't make the ceremony, <laughs> it might not hurt to go to the party. <laughs> You know, So, uh, in fact, yeah, some of us are a little sluggish today. <laughs>
1: well, well, we we uh, we won't force you to endure further questioning, Calvin. But thank you so much for uh, coming by, even, even through the fog, to give <laughs> us the pl- recap. Not a problem. My pleasure. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors.
2: Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And that's it for today's show, which is episode 200 of Publishers Weekly Radio. And I just want to thank you all for staying with us for these 200 episodes. It's been a blast. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next week, we're off for Thanksgiving, but we'll have a couple of our favorite interviews from the archives for you to enjoy, and we'll be back the week after that.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio, absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.